Why, hello. Welcome to this episode of the Theology Podcast. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest, and I've written some things. And my latest book is In the House of Tom Bombadil, and that actually may come up in the course of our conversation today with our special guest. But enough about me. How about you, Tom? I'm Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, philosophy, and Christian ethics at one of the places is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and I am writing a book on theology, metaphysics, and ethics, so this will be a fun topic today. Yeah, yeah. Glenn. I'm Glenn Sunshine, Senior Fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, Ministry Associated Reflections Ministries, a few other things, and um, retired history professor. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have uh, Dr. Jonathan McIntosh with us today. And uh, Jonathan, uh, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, I think we're going to have a fun, free-ranging conversation. But tell folks a little bit about you. Yeah, so uh, I am a fellow of humanities at New St. Andrews College. I just started my 17th year here. My first 10 years here, I taught an integrated humanities course, philosophy, literature, a little bit of political philosophy and art and architecture. A lot of guest lectures in that course, so I didn't teach in all of those areas. But uh, the last six years or so, I've been teaching a year-long colloquium in political and economic philosophy. So that's what I've been focusing on lately. And I do electives in uh, natural law ethics, um, mainly uh, political philosophy, uh, some some philosophical theology, especially uh, St. Anselm of Canterbury and St. Thomas Aquinas. And then uh, every year, every other year or so, I do uh, my Tolkien elective. That's rich stuff. Say, you you showed us a mug. And there it is. There's the mug <laughs> with the coffee. And uh, this, uh, is this, is this a really an accurate picture of who you are? Um, it's at least an accurate picture of what my students think I am. So the mug says, <laughs> it's a gift. mug is a gift from students. Uh, it says, introverted, but willing to discuss Thomistic metaphysics. Uh, <laughs> a gift by one of my students, Sam Garner. <laughs> right, right. That gives you like a conversation sort of circle of maybe three people. But anyway, <laughs> anyway but uh, we're those three, I guess, for today. <laughs> we're the three. <laughs> so uh, one of the things that uh, you're known for is a book you wrote on Tolkien, and it actually got into metaphysics. Maybe you could, maybe that could be a good launching point for us, because a lot of our listeners are Tolkien fans, and we've addressed Tolkien several times different ways, but this may be uh, an approach or an insight into Tolkien that's new to some of our people. Yeah, so uh, I am a, an accidental Tolkienist. Um, uh, in uh, I had never read the uh, Lord of the Rings until I my wife and I began uh, dating. Wow! And uh, but was um, instantly a, a fan of it. I remember the first time I tried reading the Silmarillion. <laughs> that, uh, many have started and few have finished. And I, I remember going on a road trip with my wife, uh, again, early on in our marriage, I was reading out loud the creation myth from, from Tolkien's Silmarillion, the Ainulindale. Yeah. And I, I was just completely lost. I have no <laughs> idea what was going on, yeah. um, which is ironic in hindsight, because I, th yeah. I think I've probably written the longest study of that, um, that work, uh, to date. Um, but yeah, in, in graduate school, uh, um, I was studying philosophy at the University of Dallas, and um, I was taking a course in uh, Aquinas's metaphysics, 
uh, at the time that I had um, some friends over visiting from church and we were talking about Tolkien and I had asked him if he had ever read Tolkien's um, creation myth and he hadn't. So I thought, well, it, I'll just read a couple of passages. It's a beautiful work for those of your, your audience. Um, if there's any of your audience who hasn't uh, um, read the Silmarillion, um, that's m- maybe not the case <laughs> with this podcast. Um, <laughs> but it's only, what, about nine pages and it's just poetically and philosophically brilliant uh, yeah. at the same time. And, uh, and and for those who haven't read it, or even if you've read it, if you haven't ever read it out loud, uh, it really deserves to be read out loud. Uh, Tolkien was a master wordsmith. Uh, he honed, he, there's many different versions of his, his creation myth, and he just, he, he, he perfected this thing. And every mm-hmm. word is just so well chosen. Anyway, some friends were over from from church while I was in graduate school, while I was taking this class on Aquinas' metaphysics. So I was deep in the weeds of the essence existence distinction and things like that. Um, And uh, was explaining, you know, so I was reading passages and found myself just using Aquinas' categories, metaphysical categories, to uh, bring out some of the, the subtlety and sophistication of what I thought Tolkien was doing. I thought, huh, this, this works rather well. I wonder if there's something here, if, if Tolkien is drawing from this, this Catholic, scholastic, Thomistic tradition. And uh, so I ended up writing my 30-page term paper on um, possible Thomistic themes, metaphysical themes in, in Tolkien's creation myth. Ended up having way more material that I could even use in that 30-page term paper, and that's what gave me the idea, hey, maybe this would be a, a dissertation topic. So ended up writing my dissertation on that, um, was, was shooting for around 200 pages and finished at about 400 <laughs> pages. <laughs> and, uh, and then a number of years later, uh, edited it and, and published it as a book with Angelico Press. So the title of the book is um, The Flame Imperishable, uh, Tolkien, St. Thomas, and the Metaphysics of Fairy, mm-hmm. F-A-E-R-I-E. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's a, it's a fun title and it's a, and it's a really fascinating subject. Um, a couple of things that just occurred to me as, as we were talking, uh, as you were talking, uh, and one of those is that when it comes to Tolkien and say the, you know, the, 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 the approach he takes in the Hobbit versus, you know, the Lord of the Rings and then it's a Silmarillion. Uh, I think if we ever lose sight of the fact of who the author was and someday far in the future, they have, uh, source criticism and uh, you know textual analysis. They'll think there were three different guys because of the um, actually, range of language. <laughs> actually, Chris, if you follow the rules of of source criticism in the Old Testament, you got a lot more than that. Yeah, <laughs> just in the Lord of the Rings. My daughter Elizabeth wrote an absolutely marvelous essay on this that I got to try to get into first things uh, oh, yeah, or um, yeah. or touchstone. That it, it's just an incredible send up of the whole documentary hypothesis. But if you apply those <laughs> rules strictly to yeah, Tolkien, yeah. you got yeah. more than three authors. Yeah, yeah, 30, 40, 50 authors, right? That's right. Yeah. And they all have letters J and then yep. K. Uh, are you familiar with, uh, Chris, are you, or uh, you other two, are you familiar with? Tolkien's commentary on, no, it was, this was Lewis, Lewis's commentary or his notes on Tolkien's. Um, Lays of Beleriand, um, where yeah. Lewis is using those same principles. Yeah, it's it's. I forget what volume. Yeah. Lays of Beleriand. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the volumes of the the twelve volume history of Middle Earth, 
um, mm. where we have Lewis's own feedback, his, his response to um, and notes on, on, I forget if it's the, the lay of Luthien or, or the, the um, children of Huron, um, but Lewis invents three different, uh, it's been a long time since I've read this, but <laughs> he invents yeah. three different late 19th century um, critical scholars who are who are demonstrating rather conclusively that this work couldn't have been written by the same person. <laughs> These passages not so good. So it's both Lewis not able to do anything like a normal human being. Uh, him blunting, I suppose, some of his criticisms of of Tol of parts of Tolkien that he didn't like by uh, mediating it through these fictitious um, scholars. And then yeah, also wheels within wheels. Uh, <laughs> yeah, scholarship that, uh, uh, telling yes. Tolkien that he himself couldn't have written. <laughs> <laughs> so, That's great stuff. Yeah. And with Elizabeth, Chris, you will appreciate this. There's a B source, a Bombadil source that was originally an opera. <laughs> it, yeah. Well, Bombadil is a great example of that. Is I'd be curious your yeah. thoughts on this, Chris. But um, what I always tell my students is Bombadil fits by not fitting. Yeah. Um, that, uh, yeah, he doesn't, there's a sense in which he, he doesn't really gel, but that's part of his significance is. Yeah. You know, he has an independent existence, um, and and he his within the narrative. Tolkien talks about this in his letters that you know Bombadil is important, and because he he isn't, he can't be co opted with the rest of the narrative. He just stands outside of it. Um, anyway, well, I, th I think there needs to be a book written, um, kind of making fun of the autistic sort of uh, you know sort of uh, fan base of Tolkien and their their desperate need to make everything internally consistent. You know, there's this kind of, <laughs> now, of course, Tolkien was that, but he said, as you note, that um, Bombadil was an intentionally uh, enigmatic character. It wasn't, he, he, he put him in the story just the way you, you, you put it <laughs> for a purpose. <laughs> anyway, and, and then he just leaves it at that and lets us, uh, you know, guess. But I think, you know, this is another thing that's fascinated, fascinated me about both Tolkien and Lewis. And like when I read Planet Narnia, Michael Ward's treatment of the Chronicles of Narnia, I think, of course. You know, if, you, if you've read, you know, The Discarded Image, if you're familiar with how, you know, Lewis dresses the planets in, in the space trilogy, it's just like so obvious that this is what's going on. But he never told anybody. You know, I'm not that way. I tell everybody everything. You know, it's like, I've got, I'm like, like the worst person in the world to keep a, a literary secret, you know, it's, it, but these guys didn't even tell their best friends what they were up to. You know, it, all Lewis would need to do is say, you know, toddlers, you don't get it. It's okay. <laughs> there is a rhyme and a reason to my approach. You, you might not appreciate it, but it's not just, I'm pulling stuff out of the air and throwing it all together. But anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Let, but let's jump into uh, just the subject of Thomistic metaphysics. Mm -hmm. Can you just give us a quick synopsis for those? Maybe that's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> for those who are familiar with it out there in podcast land. No, it's a good question. It's been a while since I've, I've taught Tom Thomistic metaphysics. So <laughs> I'll have to deep dig into the, the memory bank here. Um, so I would say one, a great introduction <clears throat> for the, for the layperson of of Aquinas as metaphysics, I think is and and not just this is not my view, but a view of other uh, very reputable Thomas scholars, and that is uh, G.K. Chesterton's biography, uh, The yeah. Dumb Ox. 
And, that was uh, a hugely important book for me, by the way. When I read that, it was really paradigm shifting. But go ahead. Yeah, and there's a story about Etienne Gilson, one of the 20th century's foremost Thomist scholars. Um, I, if I'm remembering the story correctly, he read it um, and then sort of threw the book down and said, well, this, you know, G Chesterton just <laughs> accomplished in this little biography more, everything I've been trying to say my entire career. Don't you hate and, that? <laughs> yeah. Um, and actually, I, I talk about this a little bit briefly in the introduction to my book and how um, I use... Uh, Chesterton's own Thomism as a, something of a model for maybe thinking about Tolkien's own Thomism, because Tolkien never refers to Aquinas in any of the writings that we have. We know that he had, uh, I think, a late 18th century Latin edition of Aquinas's Summa Theologiae. Yeah. Um, ben Merkel, president of New St. Andrews College, uh, when he was studying in Oxford, I'd heard that there was a, a Tolkien's own copy of the Summa was for sale at, hmm. I think it's a St. Philip's bookshop, uh, <laughs> which turned out to be right across the street from Christ Church College, where, yeah. where Ben Merkel was studying. Yeah. So I asked him, hey, can you go, uh, can you, I can't afford a trip over there to look at this. Could you go look at this volume for me? And so he went in there and he had, he, he got to thumb through Tolkien's own personal copy. It was multi-volume, this giant tome. Yeah. And he's, he's, you know, leafing through it and he's got there's there's um i don't know if they're like grocery list or something they're in tolkien's own script <laughs> bookmarks and he's old and he just this. <laughs> nobody, nobody knows this is here um, anyway uh but but back to chesterton and his his um book you, before on, you go on we gotta i wonder what were they asking for it i think <laughs> at the time it was four and a half this was like in 2000 Seven two thousand and eight, and they were asking four and a half thousand pounds, wow, okay. which at the time I think it, my recollection is like a two to one, yeah. um, two dollars per pound. So it was like nine thousand um, dollars. So my guess is you didn't have that kind of loose change on you at the moment. <laughs> I did not. I did not. And I think the bookshop owner. I contacted the bookshop owner and said, "Hey, I'm I'm doing this work on on Tolkien and St. Thomas, and and uh, my colleague is over there." Uh, studying, would you mind if if he came in and looked at it? And he was fine. He brought he brought the books out so Ben could look at it. Uh, ben got the impression that we were wanting, we were interested in buying this, but uh, that was not not at that not for that money. Um, <laughs> and and Saint Philip's, by the way, if I remember right, because I, I I was at Christ Church as well. At oh, okay. My my doctor father John Webster when he was canon there. Mm -hmm. Right across the street, if I remember this, that place you have to go in by special appointment. That bookshop is not one that is sort of, if it's open, it's only open one or two hours that are no one can fit into their schedule. Okay. So you have to kind of go look through, you have to kind of set an appointment up to go in and look at the, the stuff they have. That That's consistent with what I remember, how, how that went <laughs> down. So. Um. Yeah, I don't know whatever happened to those those volumes, but um, anyway, so so I used in my introduction, I talk about Chesterton's relationship to Aquinas as maybe a kind of model for thinking about Tolkien, and one of the things that uh, I forget his name, a Chesterton scholar, has suggested is that you know how, it's a question: how did Chesterton even write such a fine biography of Aquinas? And given that he doesn't seem to have spent much time researching um, <laughs> Aquinas, and the thought is he just had this kind of innate philosophical affinity with the mind. And, and so he was just able to channel, um, 
channel Aquinas, even though their philosophical vernacular and vocabulary is very different, that the suggestion is that the way Chesterton viewed the world just kind of tapped into, it was similar to, to how Aquinas did. But, but back to your question of, um, if I were to summarize Thomistic metaphysics, and here I'm, I'm drawing on and, and showing my dependence on this kind of Gilsonian uh, what's sometimes called, you know, a, a Thomistic existentialism. Yeah. This yeah. idea of the priority of the active existence. Gilson yeah. um, in one of his histories of, of metaphysics, uh, I think it's titled Being and Some Philosophers, mm-hmm. kind of goes through the history of metaphysics and shows this tendency to prioritize, especially in the Aristotelian tradition, the act uh, of the essence of a thing, its intelligible form and its intelligibility. Mm-hmm. Um and even though Aquinas was deeply Aristotelian, um, there's an argument to be made that th- that there's a way and a respect in which Aquinas sort of out Aristotelianizes even Aristotle in, in appreciating <laughs> yeah, yeah. active existence as even more fundamental than the intelligible form of a thing, and that's all bound up with the doctrine of creation. Um, where where God, when he brings things into being, he's imbuing them with existence. Yeah. And so to get come back, bring, tie this in with the Aina Lindale, um, uh, Tolkien's creation myth, one of the things I argued ab- about that work, and here I was pushing against some more prominent um, platonic readings of, of Aquinas's, cre- I'm sorry, Tolkien's creation myth, according to which, you know, Platonism is about this hierarchy of being where you start with like pure forms and intelligibility and above that, the one. And Tolkien names his creator is Iru, which means the one in Elvish. Mm-hmm. And, in, and then the one radiates or emanates into these intelligible forms. And so Tolkien gives us the Ainur, the angelic spirits. And then they they view all of creation first in music, which is, yeah. is purely formed. In fact, Tolkien yeah. uses the word abstract form in one of his letters to describe the music. And then so then you have the, the music, then you have the vision. Where, where the Ainur, the angelic beings, get to see Luvatar, the All-Father, the creator, Iru, he gives the Ainur this vision of what they've heard, mm-hmm. and then he creates the world. While on a platonic reading of that, it's hierarchical, and it, it, it starts from higher order, and then there's it, it declines. There's a descent from there. And what I argue is that Aquinas... I'm sorry, I keep mix, mixing it up. Tolkien, <laughs> it's, e- it's easy to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're all the same. Uh, but Tolkien, um, actually, he, his the progression of his creation myth is not this platonic descent and decline, but is a Christian, it's Christian and it's eschatological. It's an, an ascent um, where we start with platonic forms and it gets better from from there you yeah. start with abstract form and then they because then the Ainur are given a vision and they're blown away by the vision they like i we had no idea that this was this is where this was heading yeah. so the vision actually gives more there's a gratuitousness yeah. um a giftedness a, a surplus and abundance to the vision that's not even there already in the music the music's great it's wonderful yeah. but it's it's an initial stage and, and then we get this vision, and the vision is more um, referential and um, intentional. It points beyond itself. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of self-containedness right. to the right. music. Tolkien, the, the 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 narrative says, the Ainur knew not that the music had any um, purpose beyond its own beauty. Mm-hmm. So there's a 
self-satisfaction character to the to the creation myth. And then the Ainur are given a vision, and the vision elicits in the Ainur a desire. They want more than, than the vision. The vision promises more than it's able to deliver. And then the creator says, okay, now what you saw, Eya, that's the Elvish word for um, either it can be dis, uh, indicative, that which is, or it can be imperative, let it be. So it's mm-hmm. divine fiat yeah. and the world's brought into being. And that's, that's the gift of existence, this act of existence that, that is unrivaled even by the intelligible um, form or perception of a thing. So um, that's, um, yeah, you want to ask, you ask what, what's a good intro to uh, yeah. Aquinas' metaphysics, I would say read the Aina Lindale, and it's, it's a yeah. story of existence, I don't want to say existence over essence in the kind of, sure. um, you know, nihilistic or, or yeah, you know, right. existential sense, but in, in the sense that um, when God breathes something into being, um, that's, that's like the culmination. It's not just enough to think essences. Yeah. We want things to actually exist. And that's, that's part of what the elves represent. It's what the Ainur represents. At a certain level, I think Tolkien even brings in Bombadil, how Bombadil represents, he says, pure natural science. It's just this raw desire of things in their otherness. Yes. Um, we want right. things to exist independently of ourselves. So right. There is a sense in which, I, and, and um, <clears throat> if, I re- if I remember right, especially with Gilson, um, there is a sense in which, you know, the, that emphasis on act active existence is is demonstrating really the ex nihilo character of the gift of of creaturely being because it is suggesting that it is there isn't merely a, a kind of po- uh, a potential already there that potential right. is posited along you know along with the the act of existence right. uh, and so, and so what you don't have is 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 a kind of a it is gift all the way down is another way of right. putting it and that's its way of of talking about you don't have like a little abstract substance or you know just potential sitting there to which all of a sudden you know act is going to come along and, and charge it up but actually with the with the act of, of gift of being or, or or existence comes comes the the potential and the actualization if i remember yeah. gilson right but i yeah. think you made an interesting connection between chesterton and tolkien as well i i, I don't um I, I think allison milbank did a book on that some years ago it was called uh, chesterton and tolkien as theologians right and i don't remember uh, it's been a long time since i read that book but i do i do did note that kind of affinity uh right from the start that that sh- she saw those connections as well and i'm sure it was grounded in a similar metaphysical um kind of vision where she made the, the connections there and uh and i think the other thing is is that one thing tolkien is able to do is somehow bring out a lot of those, this is similar to what Aquinas does, is bring out a lot of those aspects of Platonic philosophy that find themselves running into dead ends if they don't have the complement of what, of what you know, Aquinas gets from Aristotle. And so you notice this thing about music. Music was a big thing with the, the Platonic line, of course, and then Augustine's uh, vision, you know, his, his elaborations on it. Um, beauty, vision... Um, and, and, and all those things. But if, if you don't, if you kind of turn these things into kind of, if you flatten them, I think is the worry with Gilson with substance talk, 
um, you don't really get at the heart of, of the beautiful insight that creation ex nihilo gives us. And I think what you see with the Silmarillion creation stories, you see all of that stuff thrust into ways of depicting it that really only that form or, or you know, very few forms are able to capture. So it might be good at this point to just do a little uh, step back to give us a kind of uh, orientation to some listeners who are unfamiliar with some of the basic issues here. So if you think about, uh, you know, uh, the School of Athens, famous painting by Raphael. So, you know, most folks have seen it, maybe didn't know what it was. <laughs> but, <laughs> but in that painting, you've got an old Plato. There it is. There, there it is. There yeah. it is. You have Excellent. an old Plato and then you have a young Aristotle. And uh, they're talking, and Plato is pointing up, and Aristotle is saying, look around. <laughs> and that, that's intended to express a kind of basic, I guess, disposition or approach to the, to the fundamental questions. So the problem with Platonism is that it has a way of being read to imply that the physical world is somehow second rate. And consequently, we're kind of... Uh, you know, way down on this bot the bottom of this ladder. And if you really want to be really real, you need to get further up the ladder. So we're at the bottom. Whereas with uh, Aristotle's understanding, he's still dealing with form and, and matter, usually referred to as essence or substance and an accident and that kind of thing. But uh, basically the way you know, the form, the essence of something is uh, working itself out in its sort of logical kind of trajectory is that it becomes the thing that you've got. So in that now in modern philosophy, uh, existence uh, trumps essence to the point where essence is completely lost. You know, you get that and in existentialism and the nihilism of the 19th century and stuff like that. So I think sometimes in our efforts to recover the essential, to get back to the ideas or to the forms, uh, we tend to valorize Plato at the expense of Aristotle. I, you see that sometimes with like radical orthodoxy people and stuff. Anyway, I don't know if that's helpful to anybody. <laughs> that's my attempt <laughs> to provide an orientation. <laughs> You're going to get a cup with a certain... <laughs> Another thing that's worth remembering is that when you're dealing with the medievals, they certainly knew the differences between Plato and Aristotle, but they also firmly believed that they could be harmonized. Yeah. Um, even at their most Aristotelian, Plato is still fundamental to everything that they're doing. So I think, you know, when you're looking at medieval theologians um, and philosophers, drawing too sharp a distinction between Plato and Aristotle is going to lead you in the wrong direction in terms of understanding what they're doing. Yeah. So that's great stuff. So um, in terms of, say, how this influences, say, Tolkien's approach, I think one of the things that's occurred to me is the complaint that, you know, there's never any, any reference to God, you know, in, say, the Lord of the Rings or to, to uh, you know, a religion uh, as such. Uh, the thing that I always had in the back of my mind was, well, in the New Jerusalem, um, is there going to be religion 
or is everything I know significant and understood in terms of its significance uh, so that you don't have, say, one day and seven set aside for worship. Instead, it's just you're in the presence of God all the time. So in a sense, uh, this isn't, I think, you know, obviously this isn't what Tolkien was doing, but in a sense, I, the, the way to approach Tolkien, I think, is to think about kind of the suffusion of the world with meaning and not, uh, you know, needing a religious sort of framework within which to interpret that. I don't know, maybe I'm putting it too strongly, but those are a couple of thoughts that come to mind. Well, one thing that you have to keep in mind is that uh, Tolkien envisioned all of this as sort of a prehistory of the world. Yeah. And he actually, at one point, explained that the reason why you don't get many direct references to God or anything like that uh, during the course of it is that revelation had not yet occurred. You know, we, we're millennia pre-Abraham. Um, you know, and, and so it, he said, you know, it's wrong to really be looking for this in there, uh, you know, because it hadn't happened yet. Um, now, now he does have the dialogue, but I forgot the, the name, Athrobel. uh, the name, yeah, the, the, the elf speaking to the human where they ultimately conclude that it's quite possible that Iluvatar might actually enter the world to fix it. Yeah, it's it's one of the the tensions of the work. You're absolutely right, Glenn, about it. It, it it's deliberately pre-Christian, and so he he wants to try to at some level recover a kind of pagan ethos, at the same time have it be a highly idealized pagan ethos that's based off of a kind of natural a kind of natural theology. So the the elves are all nat you know into natural theism, um, and he even says. You know there is worship. There's a there's a temple in um, in Atlanta or not Numenor. Um, I think it's the the roof. There is no roof on on the temple. I'm trying to remember. Some, you know, they're they're how they symbolize architecturally the the transcendence of Iluvatar and Sauron um, seduces the Numenorians into Melkor worship. So it's a kind of Satan worship. And there's a kind of Gnosticism and Manichaeism there. Um, so there, there, there's certainly theology in the Silmarillion. And he talks about in one of his letters how, you know, Frodo basically would have known about Iluvatar. He was taught by the elves, Bilbo. So, so I think you're right on the one hand, Glenn. On the other hand, he, he tips his hand and shows that there is theology in the background, right? We see Faramir and, and his men this act of grace in the, the chapter of windows on the window on the West. Um, it, it's veiled Gandalf referring to himself as the servant of the secret fire. So, um, but, but that's the, the absence of, of religious themes is of course, quite deliberate. It's deliberate for the historical reasons you mentioned, Glenn. Um, but that, that pic, even that picture is complicated, but I think it's also important aesthetically for him. Um, you know, he wants to tell a fairy story and fairy stories just tend to not be very theological. Yeah. And uh, one of the things I argue um, in, in my book is that it's also important for his concept of eucatastrophe, that for eucatastrophe to work, for it to 
to really take grip on us, there has to be a kind of sense of defeat, which is hard to do if you're constantly being reminded God's there to there to right, save you. Right. So, um, oh, one of the so one of the things I claim is is that this is why I think the Ainulindale and the Valaquenta and and some of those early chapters of the Silmarillion are important because I think what Tolkien is doing is he's setting up the metaphysical theology of the thing that will help explain the absence, so to speak, of Iluvatar, of God later on. And what I, one of the things that passages I point to is, oh, it's the chapter of uh, Yav, uh, Aule and Yavanna, when Aule, the Valar who makes the, the dwarves, and he makes these witless automata who can't do anything but move in the way that he directs them. Um, because he want, he jumped the gun, he got impatient. It's a great, I think both Adam's story and Abraham's story, uh, Isaac themes, Ishmael and so forth with the, the dwarves being children of my adoption versus the children of my my, my choice, the elves. Uh, there's a Jew-Gentile thing going on there, I think. Just uh, some interesting... By the way, I've actually heard uh, Jews refer to themselves as the dwarves in uh, <laughs> The Lord of the Rings. They, 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 oh, they picked yeah, they picked up on it. <laughs> okay. Well, I, was, I would have gone the other direction. Oh, I know, I know, I yeah. know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Ish, Ishmael. Anyway, um, so but but in that scene, um, so so Ali makes the dwarves. Uh, they can't do anything, um, and he he repents, realizes this was a mistake. He goes to smash them with the hammer. Um, this is another one of those stories. If any if any in your audience hasn't read the chapter of Ali and Yovanic, it's brilliant. It's amazing. Even just the male-female husband-wife relationship in that chapter is so – it's not <laughs> ideal, but it's very human. Let's just let's put it that way. <laughs> Probably somewhat reflective of Tolkien's relationship with his wife at times. Sure, maybe, sure. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, <laughs> anyway, he goes to smash the dwarves. They flinch. That's because Iluvatar has blessed them with independent souls and has taken them up, elevated them into Iluvatar's own purpose – but then Yavanna is concerned because she's the goddess of living things and plants and trees. Right. And the, right. well, the dwarves are going to cut stuff down. And so she <laughs> wants somebody to protect them. And she remembers this vision, a part, part of the vision, the, the, the right. eagles and the ents, everybody else, all the right. other Valar had forgotten about them. And she goes yeah. to Manway and says, hey, I want, I want some trees basically that, that will <laughs> – that will protect the trees that will exact vengeance um, for those who take advantage. And I love Manway's response. Manway is the Zeus figure. Right? He's the, he's the, right. the head God of the, the uh, pantheon. And he says, that is a strange thought. <laughs> um, and Yavanna says, but it was in the vision. And so, and then yeah. Al, uh, Manway is treated to a replay of, of the vision. And he sees, oh yeah, there are the eagles and, and the ants. And the way it's described is, um, I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm forgetting this. I, it's been a little bit since I've read it, but it's almost as though, um, he sees Arda, the creation being upheld by the hands of Iluvatar while, um, it's almost as though then Iluvatar with his other hand, so to speak, is interjecting something, this eucatastrophe, in this case, the interject, the introduction of the Ents and the Elves. And uh, so I kind of view that as a, as a paradigm for thinking about the theology, how Tolkien thinks about mm -hmm. the theology of, of the Lord of the Rings, which is otherwise a quote-unquote atheistic work. It's deliberately 
it's it's there's the atheos god is not mentioned and but it's quite right. purposeful and it's because tolkien has this rich medieval metaphysical conception conception of things where everything is theological he doesn't see god yeah. in competition or rivalry with yeah. his thing so to talk about things is to talk about god yeah. whereas you know we modern christians and evangelicals we 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 bring right. God down and put him on par with other yeah. things so that when we tell stories, well, we got to introduce God as a character just like other yeah. things right. yeah. um, because that's what it means to tell a theological narrative. And I think Tolkien, it his story doesn't mention God because God is so far down into the DNA of creation of so everything that he yeah, can that, afford to not mention him. I think yeah. that that's one of the hardest things to communicate to my theology students is that for most of Christianity, the way God was conceived is not the biggest thing around the top, you know, the, the kind of in competition with everything. But as a source and end of all things, all of creation is is radiant with that presence. Everything is interconnected through the gift and the and the moral responsibilities to that. That that you don't have to introduce. Um, everything with a quote-unquote God qualification because it's already assumed throughout, throughout in, in human relationships and everything else. And and I think that you you uh, you do this in the book. I know you you really show that the metaphysics of creation and his connection of expressing that in in this form of I guess a new myth. Um, he really saw that as as I think one of one of his primary goals, and I think similar to Lewis and that whole group is that. This is a, this is a conception of God and God's relationship to things that has really been eclipsed by the moderns and modern theology, especially now evangelical theology. And I think they their service was to give it back to us. We just don't yet know how to figure out how to read it from that form, or we're just learning to. Yeah. Well, I think I think one of the things that's really important uh, and helpful about all of this for the Reformed is this is a way of thinking about providence in a way that we generally don't. Uh, we do tend to think of God as the biggest guy on the block, and he's pushing buttons and making us do things. Now, our confession, the Westminster Confession, says that's not how it, how it actually works. But as modern people, we automatically kind of, automatically, I'm using that language, <laughs> yeah, we automatically kind of fall into that. And I think one of the things that is interesting, too, about, say, you know, the creation story of Tolkien, and even other things that he wrote, like Leaf by Niggle, is what is the relationship between God's providence and our, you know, our work? Uh, so, you know, in the, in, you know, the creation myth, we have the Valar singing, right? So it's not just, you know, the one, Aru, all by himself, all, you know, alone, you <laughs> know, mm -hmm. decreeing things. Uh, there are actually uh, what we could call the angelic host, I think, fairly, uh, who are there. And even, you know, in scripture, we, we hear the, the, the we, you know, uh, and we can say that's a reference to the Trinity, but uh, there's always a sense that the Lord of hosts is God, that there are other beings, other creatures. Now, they're creatures, they're not gods in the same sense, but that even that's a similarity uh, when we think about Iluvatar and the Valar, uh, in a sense, we could say they're like the gods. There's a pantheon. And then another way we'd say, no, they're actually more like angelic beings. Um, anyway, just some thoughts that occur to me as we're, you know, rambling here. Yeah. Well, um, 
you you can also keep in mind that gods with a small g is sometimes used for the angelic host in the yeah, Old Testament. Yeah. So the so the the distinction isn't quite as sharp as as we might normally think. Another thing that's been floating around in the back of my mind, I don't know if Tolkien was actually aware of this, and uh, Jonathan, you may be able to help here. The idea of religion itself is really. Uh, a, a lot of scholars of religion will argue that it is a product of Christianity. That, in fact, in most cultures, and I would argue it in terms of Christianity, it has to do with the tension between the Roman government and the church in, in the early centuries. Because in most cultures, religion is just part of the fabric of life. It's, it's just simply there and it's not a distinct area that's different from anything else. Um, with Christianity, you really develop a different way of understanding religion. Um, less so in the Middle Ages, but really, uh, I think it was even even there you see it, um, where it, it becomes something that is sort of separable from life from uh, uh, mundane yeah. life. You know, we have the secular and the religious, you know, where in most cultures they don't have yeah. that. And it may be that that is, is sort of implicit here. And, you know, the idea that, um, you know, as, as Tom would say, it's gift all the way down, um, that Iluvatar is so deeply embedded in Middle Earth that, you, you know, that, that you, you can't escape uh, his, his presence and his action, even though you don't actually see it. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Well, sorry, I'm torn between what Glenn just said and what CR was saying earlier, which one to run with. Whatever you want to run with. Yeah. You can run with both. <laughs> well, I'll stick with uh, what I feel like I know better. I go back. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, in, Chris, what you said about um, providence and, and our role. Because this is an area where um, I think I'd sent you guys an article that I'd written on um, – on, uh, sort of uh, the, the theology and metaphysics of divine possibility because this is a topic that I got into kind of post working on Tolkien and it was really thinking through Tolkien's theory of subcreation and um, the significance, the metaphysical significance, the contribution that our subcreations make to God's providential plan. You mentioned Leaf by Niggle earlier and it's, if you think about it, I mean, that is an audacious yeah. work what he's proposing <laughs> where yeah. niggle paints a tree and then um god takes that painting and makes it part of his own creation we see this with Aule, we see this with the ainur um and um one of the questions i've had is you know how how far can we take that so take something there's a question that i like to pose to my to my students and that is you know the, the, the notion of where does Hobbit fit in God's providential plan? Um, I think most of us are closet platonists on this question where we think of Hobbit as this kind of intelligible form, to go back to our earlier discussion of essences <laughs> and forms, that exists sort of in the mind of God or in the platonic cloud somewhere, side by side with men, elves, unicorns, horses, both things that God could make and things that God did make, and you know, hobbits are up there somewhere. And then um, 
so that, but, but, um, so God could have made hobbits, um, but he chose not to and, and chose to give this idea of a hobbit to Tolkien. That raises all sorts of questions. One of them, how does, how do we know that Tolkien got the notion of hobbit right? Um, <laughs> but also it raises the question, what sense was Tolkien subcreating hobbits if, if it's just this transcendent form that always was there and, and he just discovered it in 1930, whatever, whenever right, he started writing right. hobbits. <laughs> um, and so uh, one of the ways I, I tend to put it, and I'm, I'm curious what you guys think about this, um, but it's to say that, you know, for all we know, I mean, God is the Lord of all and, and God is not responsive to creation. He is the sovereign Lord of all. Um, but it still makes a difference whether we think of hobbits as something that's sort of in the mind of God all eternally, sort of side by side, even independent of Tolkien. Does God think of hobbits independent of Tolkien or does hobbits only only exist in God's own mind as things that God thought up Tolkien thinking up. Yeah, right? Sure. <laughs> um, right, right. And if you go with that model, right. then, then um, God is still in charge. He's, sure. he's sovereign either way, but it yeah. means that Tolkien has a significance and a status within God's providential plan on that model that he doesn't on our other way of thinking about things. Yeah. Right? Yeah, well, I think one of the places you can go for that is the Anulindale, where um, after Melkor's second attempt to assert himself in the music, uh, Iluvatar says to him something to the effect of, okay, I'm going to show you what you did, but you need to understand that no one can promote or propagate or, or create a theme apart from me. Yeah. So he's saying that even Melkor's rebellion has its roots somehow in his own mind, it seems to me. That seems to be the implication of that. You can't come up with any theme apart from me. Right. Yeah. Well, in a sense, though, isn't Melkor's theme, though, the, uh, the sort of the annihilation of the of the rest of the music? And that's as far as he can go. Uh, in other words, he's not a creative. Yeah, the the two Actor. words that stand out to me in that narrative, um, he uses the word alter. He says, no one can alter the theme in my despite. That's the, the passage you're thinking That's of. That's the phrase, okay. Um, yeah. There's alteration, and then there's um, adornment. Um, but the Ainur, he tells the Ainur, adorn the theme. And so there's this idea of taking, you know, these kind of, what the Stoics would call the ratione seminales. There's these built-in potencies in the music and the theme that Iluvatar gives to the Ainur. And, and he's asking them, you unpack them, but it's not just unpacking a suitcase where everything's pre-given. There's real yeah. creativity. There's real yeah. ingenuity. The Ainur, there's real contingency. You know, you mentioned the Westminster Confession of Faith, and, yeah. and it, it says, you know, God is sovereign, and, and part of that sovereign means real contingency in creation. Right. And so that means the, the Ainur can unpack this thing in different ways. So adorn, I like that as a, as a yeah. that yeah. pair, adornment versus alteration. What the Ainur do and what good subcreation does is adorn. It complements. Yeah. It, it, it unfolds. Uh, Tolkien talks about subcreation as the affoliation and enrichment of creation versus alteration where, where yeah. Melkor is taking it and trying to uh, twist it. It's, it's interesting because, I mean, in theology, it's very similar. We talk about the offering 
the human offering we make to God of the things we we participate in as creatures. Um, you, we, I often talk about just, you know, we've done it on the show enough, but we talk about sacraments. You talk about the way in which you're not just given grain and grapes. You're actually giving something that's been formed, well, let's just use a metaphor, bread and wine. There's, there's been human cultivation in here. Yes, it's, it's taking, the, you know, the kind of potential that is in something, certain ends in it, in actualizing them. But in offering this, there is something about the human contribution in that that is not irrelevant and it is not merely just giving god something back that it, of god it is something given back of the creature of god that's something that, that the creature has had a share in but not a share in in a way that it isn't a gift from god but it is something that participates in, in that that you know plenitude of god in such a way that is something god takes true delight in and has a contribution to make to to the you know the voice the vo- the music of creation if you will it it is not just merely a, a repetition of what it's hearing it's it's adding an improvisational line that's you know a couple of thoughts come to my mind because I've been dealing with this quite a bit lately in my book I'm writing on totalitarianism because totalitarianism has no room for this um, so uh, it has no room for God for one thing but it also has no room for freedom because everything's about knowledge is control so um but getting back to 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 this idea you know when we think about adam naming the animals how did he go about it well you know the kind of the modern linguistic sort of theory approach is that these are arbitrary uh vocalizations that he attaches to these creatures but then we see later that that's not how he names eve he, he actually has some insight into what she is and her uh, unique contribution to the world. And her names, woman and Eve, uh, have a logic to them. So it's an, now, in each case, we could say that God's word precedes Adam's words. And in a way, Adam is saying amen to everything God has done. But he's also contributing. There's something that's new, that's introduced through his vocalizations, through his naming, but it's truth, it's truthful insofar it's an, it's an agreement with what God has made, but then there's a development. Now later, of course, in, in Genesis chapter 11, after the fall, language is reduced to just a, a tool, an instrument to get what you want in Babel, and at that point, uh, God introduces a little, uh, you know, twist. <laughs> not being able to understand you. I actually, my own reading of that, my own read of that is that the Babel curse is just simply what occurs to language when you lose touch with the Lagos. When you lose touch with the Lagos, then everybody's suspicious of everyone else. And you don't have genuine community anymore because you're, you're at that point unable to trust anybody because you're always afraid somebody's going to put one over on you. And that's the the origin of the the break or the, the 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 thing that breaks down. Now, getting back to this idea of not being able to. So, if God is being, and He is, that means there's nothing outside of that space that we call being, right? So, I I, I like when I try to help people understand, you know, uh, the sovereignty of God. One of the ways I describe it is: I imagine a room lined with doors. 
Okay. And every time you open a door to leave the room, you actually come in through another door. In other words, there literally is nothing outside the room. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you just are, are, are relocating yourself within God's providential, you know, relationship to being. You're not actually fundamentally changing uh, being. You are... Uh, now you you are doing things. They're real things. You can harm people. You can you can adorn. I like that. You can, you can adorn uh, what God has made, but it's not as though you're surprising God. Like, oh, I never thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> you're not you're not surprising God, um, but you are God's own ordained from all eternity means for bringing yeah. something into being. Yeah. for which God had, didn't devise any other means, right? Yeah. So going back to Adam naming the animals, you know, I love to point out the text says, and whatever Adam named them, that was the name thereof. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. what God himself started calling things. Yeah. He, he, he waits for Adam to name them, and then that's what God names them. And, and again, that raises the question, well, how do we know Adam got it right? Um, well, if he was doing it in obedience, yeah. then then he did it right. Um, yeah. and And God... So that means there's a sense in which God himself has no other name for a thing than what God ordained Adam to name them. Adam's right, yeah, built right. into, yeah. right? Yeah. Adam is how God names things and God yes. doesn't name thing any other way, but yeah. by, by Adam. And uh, likewise, that's how we know Tolkien got hobbits, right? Because there is no hobbit except what Tolkien came up with. That's right. Yeah. And, um, yeah, anyway. Well, that, but that, that that is very important for a lot of a lot of reasons to get that. I mean, I remember years ago taking a class with Nicholas Lash before he retired. He was a Catholic uh, theologian. One of the things he he talked about is most people think of God's creation, but everything a human does isn't part of God's creation. And I used right. to tell me everything a human does is part of God's creation, except for the evil and sin. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it is not merely just part of what God creates, but it is the distinct particular part you know there's a different you know there is a big difference between particular and you know specific um thomas Fowle gets into a lot of that but it is it's the the specifics of of what each of us do that that show that we all participate in that gift in in a very peculiar way that never exhausts the plenitude of god but is able to refract it in some way both, you know, you know, to be what God wants to do, you know, wants to create through that that secondary means. Um, it's interesting though that um, the notion, especially we talk about Thomas's metaphysics or just classic Christian, is the way in which um, teleology works with all of that. The the pulling of all things towards God as as their end as well. Um, and there, there, there's. I, I imagine for T Tolkien, there is this kind of interplay going on there as well. The way in which, at, as we're, as as God's creation points to the Creator, um, there is evoking in us certain things that does actualize at times things peculiar to the way we're wired and our contribution to them. Um, that is an unfolding of 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 a purpose. Um, that is all heading towards that fulfillment goal, but is, is very different. In other words, you can have two humans, both oriented towards, you know, the beatific vision, but their contributions in life are fundamentally different and for the flourishing of the whole and say they're both different humans being obedient. And yet you can't say that what they produce is merely just accidental in, in, a, in, in, in this kind of theology. So what they're, what they're bringing about is definitely 
something God wants to bring about through it, um, but it is also something that, that is what God wants to do through those two. I mean, I mean that's your key point there, right? Yeah, yeah. No, Tol- yeah. Tolkien came up with hobbits, and he's fundamentally altered the kinds yes. of things that there are, at least imaginatively for us. And going forward, yeah. creation is forever going to bear that stamp of yeah. hobbits are now a thing. They weren't a thing yeah. until Tolkien came up with it. <laughs> Not because God didn't know. Sure. God ordained sure. for, for yeah. the first you know right. period of, of creation history that there was no such thing as hobbits. I, yeah. I would submit <laughs> that that you know, five minutes before Tolkien flipped over a blank page, you know, he saw when he's grading those exams and he had and saw that blank sheet and wrote in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. There was no such thing in creation history yeah. as hobbits, had yeah. no existence whatsoever. Not because you know it caught God off guard, but God in his providential writing of the history, yeah. he left hobbits out for that period. It had no meaning yeah. then, and yeah. then it did. And going forward, it's now part of Part of and, it, part and of it's crazy. a significant meaning. It's inspiring for many people. Uh, you know, people, for example, my my daughter and my son-in-law refer to themselves as hobbits. <laughs> they don't they don't refer to themselves that way to to sort of denigrate themselves. <laughs> uh, but you know, then a hobbit. <laughs> but then there are other things like duffel puds and stuff like that. You know, and you say, well, how far does this go? I, I guess we don't need to be afraid of that, but because it just is the case that least in the sort of status of existence that hobbits and duffelpuds exist, you know, in terms of our consciousness and our literary canon and our, uh, you know, they, they don't have the same kind of existence as say a baby that you've gotten in your, in the other room, but they exist in a sense that's still significant playing a role uh, in people's lives. Uh, Jonathan, I, I guess I, you know, we, we talk about a lot about this, especially since we're seeing an increased interest in it, but especially the, the, you know, the import of the arts, you know, um, in, in the humanities, much less in, in the Christian vision of thing and how at certain times that has really taken off, whether it's cathedrals, whether it's, you know, artwork, painting, literature, poetry, music. Um, and, and I think really, Part of what both the metaphysics of creation and in its richest theological forms and then what Tolkien are up to, they're really talking about, you know, there is that aspect of your point there. It is worth it is worth investing in those kinds of things, because those are things God is up to, are doing art, are doing those things. A lot of times we often talk about, well, if the human tries to do it, it somehow is always looked at under this dark cloud. And it can never be seen to still refract. But, you know, as you know, Scripture is always talking about bringing, you know, the renewal of all things, the bringing all things back into conformity to Christ. And that this had, this is kind of like building on the cornerstone, right, for an everlasting temple. So this doesn't lose its significance, nor is it merely transitory. Well, I think one of the things that comes to my mind immediately at this point is, a kind of, you know, a subject that we've uh, touched on many times, and that's the nature of technology. So does this apply to the computer? Does this comply, uh, uh, you know, if, if so, then does this apply to artificial intelligence? You know, there's a whole Pandora's yeah. box we're opening up here. <laughs> Any thoughts are we on that? We're talking about rings of power, right? <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. Well, there's hobbits and then there's rings of power. Yeah, well, that's a good thought. I mean, so uh, how do, how do we distinguish our works? 
maybe this would be a good way to sort of bring the show in for landing because we're getting you know almost yeah. to the end here. Any yeah. any thoughts that come to mind, Jonathan? Well, yeah, I don't. Uh, th- that is that is in some ways, many ways, the question. I don't know that I. I can do better than just our earlier discussion. That's why I think that those two categories of alteration versus adornment are so important. Um, it's, it's, you know, sometimes it, it's not easy to tell which is which, you know, I make a computer, I make an iPhone, a smartphone. If I created something that liberates humanity and helps give us new access to and adorns creation or have I just enslaved everybody? <laughs> and, you know, in some of our technology, it, it, it does both. And, you know, Tolkien was clearly concerned about this um, and intended towards, um, um, you know, a, a, a profound skepticism of, of technology. Um, <clears throat> and, and he, one of the things I love about Tolkien's work is his willingness to play with these things and, 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 and bring forth ambiguity. So we get, um, you know, the rings of power, the same, but these, the rings that the elves have are, are instruments of beauty and subcreation. This is why there's Rivendell. This is why there's Lothlorien. But then the same technology is used for creating Mordor and creating domination and, and, you know, clearly purpose and tension, intentionality is, is important, but even that's not always sufficient because Gandalf says, if you gave me the ring, I would intend to use it for good. And that, and, and it would be downhill from there. It would, it would be horrible. Uh, So there, you know, uh, the the path to hell is paved with good intentions and so forth. So, so, Clearly, intentions matter, but um, it can't just be our own personal intentions. We have to cut with the grain of, of being, of the things that are, going back to what what uh, Thomas was saying. And um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't think I have any great insight on that question more, more than anybody else other than, um, you know, I think it's a, it's a dilemma, a tension that's really lie, the theme of that lies near the heart of Tolkien's work and trying to get this right. What's the difference between an Aule who makes the dwarves and he does it be, because I wanted things that would, that would look at creation, that would look at Arda and marvel at its beauty. But I was impatient. I got ahead of myself. I shouldn't have done this. This was above my pay grade. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe overrealized eschatology. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know, get, get along that along that line, you know, when you think about you know the introduction of technology in uh, Genesis. You know, you had people like Tubal Cain, uh, you know, in chapter four of Genesis, and uh, the scenario or the setting is not all that uh, uplifting. <laughs> so, uh, but later on, of course, we have uh, the temple, and we have the Ark of the Covenant. We've got all other, you know, all these other th- ways in which the arts are employed in the worship of God and and in the, in the adornment of creation. Yeah, yeah. I I could tell you were saying something there, Glenn. I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah. Um, an odd thought about the elven rings. I'm not sure that they were good. <laughs> First of all, they are keyed to Sauron's technology. Yeah. And secondly, what are they designed to do? They're designed to basically hold back um, the changes, uh, the hold back time, yeah. hold hold back the advancement of uh, of of history, yeah. of God's purposes in history. Pres- now, preservation. When you put it when you put it in terms of God's purposes, that that is probably overstating it. 
but but in the is the goal of of pure preservation um necessarily the right goal even in the context of middle earth yeah yeah no, that's that's yeah i may, may have chosen a bad example it, i think it's ambiguous you're right to point that out there's something already questionable about the elvish the the even their rings it's they, they learn it my understanding is they learn that technology from sauron i forget from sauron yeah. yeah so their preservation can be good and and uh, my fifth chapter of the book is all on tolkien's metaphysics of evil and i suggest there's sort of five different places where evil gets registered. There's lots of different ways of doing this, but this is just a way I find helpful. Is at the level of creation, so we see Melkor wanting Iluvatar's own creative power. So we see evil take place at the level of wanting the power to give being. Then there's sub-creation where you're, you're misusing your power, your rightful powers, your creaturely finitude powers of sub-creation, misusing those to fashion things you shouldn't. Then there's preservation, where you're taking things that have been made or subcreated and trying to preserve them in a way that it extends its life span beyond what Iluvatar, what, what Providence wants it. So preservation, um, domination, maybe is this six categories? Anyway, domination, where you're trying to just exert your will over other things, and then annihilation, where you just want to obliterate being. Right. So yeah, your point is well taken. Maybe um, Maybe a better ambiguous um, comparison is the the theme of splintered light where we have the Silmaril jewels yeah. and maybe you could say that make the same argument about them as you were making about the elvish rings but in his um, poem mythopoeia dedicated you know written addressed to lewis um the hater of myth um <laughs> misomethus um uh tolkien's uh, poem mythopoeia he uses the image of um the sub-creator is this prism that takes in the white light of creation and then refracts it out into many hues. And that's what creation, the sub-creation does. That's, that's adornment. You're taking this kind of undifferentiated feature of creation and you're exploring the, the potentialities and, and, and unpacking them, as to use that metaphor from before. But then in Gandalf talking to, to Sauron, or I'm sorry, Saruman, he talks about, you know, he's now Saruman in many colors. And he says, um, the white light can be broken. And Gandalf famously replies, well, he who breaks a thing to find out how it works has left the path of wisdom. I find that really interesting that Tolkien, I don't want to say subverts, but yeah. I don't know, plagiarizes his own image. Yeah, right, right. Works it both ways. Yeah. yeah and yeah, uh, yeah. so that's that doesn't help answer the question. It just shows that Tolkien's appreciative of, of how difficult it can be at the ground level to to see what what the difference is between lawful subcreation the arts going back to thomas's point versus these manipulations that are actually evil and corrupting. And it's interesting you mentioned We really need to wrap up. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. We'll save it for another time. That's, that's right. Yeah, I could tell that we were about to launch on a whole new theme. <laughs> yeah, we're about uh, five minutes over. Anyway, okay. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast. It's been a fun conversation. We will have to have you back, Jonathan, because Tom has a question, and that, that will launch a whole other conversation. A whole other a new show. show. <laughs> thank you all. Yeah, thanks for coming. And if you uh, uh, would like to support the work of the Theology Podcast, uh, it would be appreciated. Uh, we have costs. Uh, we have to pay for the production of the content, and it's posting on various platforms and 
and your gifts through Patreon and even through our website uh, help to make that happen. So thanks a lot. We hope you will check out our Patreon site or our, our website and consider uh, making a donation to the, to the cause. Anyway, that's enough for now. Bye-bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy another of our podcasts, The Good Life Podcast, featuring Matt Carpenter interviewing experts in their field about how their work contributes to the good life.